It's a destination. We are finally here. Let's go. Welcome back, everybody. Episode number two of Destination Dynasty. We're back. I made it to episode two, and I want to thank everybody that reached out to me last week for the inaugural episode. I did spend a little bit of time on the first episode kind of talking about my journey uh, from starting in this space, starting in the content creation space, all the way through Dynasty and Chill, and here uh, with Destination Devi and Landing at your show that you're listening to right now, Destination Dynasty. So thank you again for being here. Uh, It's only going to be uphill from here as I kind of work out the kinks. I did want to let everybody know uh, that I am going to start planning on doing some live streaming. Uh, I'll just have to find out specific times where I want to record the episode prior to doing it on Sundays. As I said last week, uh, doing these episodes on the weekend uh, before the game start or during the game starting on Sundays makes it a little challenging to do live streaming because honestly, I don't think it's the best time to do actual content live on YouTube only because everybody is watching football. Uh, and I really kind of enjoy watching football. I actually go every single Sunday, watch football with my dad. It's one of our traditions. So it's really hard to actually squeeze in doing some sort of live streaming at that time, given that all of the games are on. Uh, and it can kind of get a little distracting if you're talking about actual plays that are happening, data that's coming in while you're trying to do a live stream. So I want to keep it separate, uh, but I promise I'm going to pick out some times to record an episode and do it as a live stream on YouTube uh, under Destination Dynasty. Take questions, talk about topics. Maybe we'll do it like every three or four episodes during the season, just as follow-ups to things that might be asked or follow-up questions that I get from the previous episode. So I wanted to follow up last week's episode. Uh, Got a lot of great feedback talking about running backs uh, and was actually on uh, a couple shows between then and now. Uh, either on my Patreon or on uh, with Adam from 4D Chess, talking about the impact of the 23 class and how it's going to change the scope of the running back values. If you listen to last week's episode, I talked a lot about how the running back landscape is changing uh, and how it actually gives you an advantage if you're able to construct your teams to gain access to a lot of the running back starts that people don't value uh, in Dynasty. But then what happens after this season? You know, this, I think, is going to work for the rest of this year. But then what happens when we get to the 2023 draft and how that impacts rookies? So we're going to talk a little bit about that. But tonight's episode is actually going to focus on the wide receivers, because I think with the running back fall, you have the rise of the wide receivers. And, you know, we've talked a lot about warp. I don't have the warp data right now through week five, but there's going to be a point where we're going to talk a little bit about warp. Uh, for the wide receivers versus running backs uh, later on as we get more data into the season. But I wanted just to talk a little bit about some context, because with last week's episode, if you haven't listened, go back and listen to last week's episode, all about running backs, all about, you know, the data of where the production comes from and how to gain access to that in your lineups. But now let's flip because you would say that if the running backs are falling, if the market is down on running backs, that means they have to be up somewhere else. They have to be up at the other positions. And naturally, you're going to think, well, the wide receivers are rising. So I'm going to look a little bit at historical data at wide receiver and just try to figure out, you know, where we might be able to spot some trends, what wide receiver production looks like. And I'll probably tie this in 
to a future episode talking about quarterback efficiency uh, and how I think that relates to wide receiver production. That's going to be for another episode. That's a little too much of a deep dive uh, to do tonight. This one's actually being recorded prior to the Bengals-Ravens Sunday night game. And of course, I am a Bengals fan, uh, so I'm going to try to make this one a little bit shorter uh, just so I can get over and watch that game, uh, watch my team go for first place. So let's just get into it. Uh, Tonight, we're going to focus on wide receiver data. I went back and looked at a 10-year average of wide receiver data, trying to figure out if we can spot some trends and apply it to today. So I went back and looked at essentially the wide receiver finishes over the past decade. Uh, And it was pretty interesting uh, to go back and look at where the distribution was. So I looked at you know, wide receivers from wide receiver one to wide receiver 24. So basically what would encompass a wide receiver one and a wide receiver two season? It's a lot of the same data that you're going to hear people talk about when they cite like hits or hit rate for wide receivers. So I just want to look at where the distribution is of that data and kind of where it lands. And so I went back and just wanted to establish a baseline. I talked a little bit on the last podcast about replacement value for running backs being around 14.3 points per game. Uh, For wide receivers, we're going to talk about this threshold. It's not necessarily replacement value because I think we look at replacement value a little bit differently uh, at the wide receiver position. Uh, for a couple reasons. Uh, One, you usually can start more of them, but more importantly, it comes down to in a lot of leagues, we have positions that are known as flexes. And if you look at, you know, just the optimal strategy or the optimal scoring strategy, historically, you know, the wide receivers, once you start getting into those flexes, outpace the running backs. If you look at that inflection point, if you call 14.3 PPR points per game, replacement value at running back, Uh, You're looking at that falling right around the range of wide receiver 20 to wide receiver 21 over the last decade. So if you compare the two, if you actually looked at that inflection point between running back scoring and wide receiver scoring, the RB1 cutoff, so you're talking about right around 14, 14 14.3 points per game. It just depends on what nuance you're speaking about, but let's just call it replacement value for running back. So that 14.3 that I talked about last week. That's going to fall right around the wide receiver 20 to wide receiver 21 on the plot chart. But as you start to go a little bit further down, the RB24 uh, is right around historically around 11.1 points per game. That's the cutoff. So if you're looking at like the 10-year mark, that's the cutoff of what it would take to be a quote-unquote RB2 or a top 24 running back. And in most leagues, if you just assume, if we're talking about, for example, on this show, we're talking about a league where you start three wide receivers, you don't even get down to the point where the end of the wide receiver three numbers uh, are below the RB2 numbers. And so historically, if you take that, you know, obviously the running backs start to drop off faster than the wide receivers, but also if you're looking at the distribution of the numbers, uh, it's more than 60%. If you just took like optimal best ball scoring, week to week over that 10-year period, uh, you're looking at more than 60% of the time you have a wide receiver in the flex. So that doesn't mean you can't flex running backs. I talk about this all the time on our Patreon channel. I talk about something I do called the scoring matrix, and it tries to let you figure out the optimal types of players you want to put in your flexes and the optimal number of players that you probably want to carry within certain ranges. But essentially, the dominant strategy is to always flex receivers as long as they are within a certain range. And I'm not going to talk specifically about that on this episode. I'm going to save it for a future show where I talk a little bit more about the scoring matrix, roster construction, what I call the wide receiver threshold. 
but I'm speaking to it right now to where essentially when you get into the flex range, uh, the ride receivers are always going to outpace the running backs to a certain point. And if you're just talking about a league where you're starting three receivers and two flexes, that flex range is almost always going to be occupied by a wide receiver. You always want it to be occupied by a wide receiver. And there's more wide receivers that are going to occupy that space as well. So it kind of gets into the idea of the dominant strategy is to always flex wide receivers, period. And so with that said, until that changes, and if you listen back to last week's episode, I know I keep saying that, but the trends are that's never going to change. It's very unlikely that we are ever going to see this running back threshold exceed the wide receivers in the flex range. And we're talking about, again, a baseline of start three receivers, start two running backs with two flexes, and it being PPR scoring. If you're starting to incorporate higher tight end premium, well, obviously the tight ends are going to go into the flexes at a higher rate. If you're talking about half PPR, the running backs are going to go in the flexes at a slightly higher rate than the wide receivers at that point, or at least the gap is going to be bridged closer. It's more closer to like 50% of the time versus 60 plus percent of the time. Then you start adding in point per carry scoring. You know, those nuances are going to change. But if we're just talking about a baseline, PPR scoring, start three receivers, start two running backs and two flexes. The dominant strategy is to put wide receivers in the flexes. Now, if you map these out, you go all the way down to where basically the running backs flatten off and then down to the point where the wide receivers flatten off. That's going to be further down than your two flexes. That's going to be further down than in most cases, your three or four top bench spots. So that lends into this idea of, okay, if I can start three receivers, I can also start two flexes. The dominant strategy is going to always be to have five receivers in those spots. I also want to continue with that by probably having two, three, four more receivers or so on my bench that can occupy those spots at all times when I have an injury, when I have a bye week. And then it starts to drop off. So this is the idea of where you get into this roster construction of, all right, I want to have eight, nine, 10 receivers as high a quality as I can. And then I don't want any others, especially in a lineup league where I have to guess, where I have to guess where the distribution of those points are going to come from on a week to week basis. And it makes it a lot more difficult. That's when you're going to go into, all right, now I'm going to have running backs occupy most of my other roster spots, and I'm going to know when to play them. I'm going to know to when I think I can drop them into that RB2 spot like we talked about on last week's episode, and it's a lot easier to do that because sits and starts at running backs are a lot easier. Predicting touches from a week-to-week basis at running back is a lot easier. So let's dive into the data. So we're going to look at the last decade and try to spot some trends. Uh, And you'll see them emerge as I'm going through this data, but I want to just establish a baseline. So I'm going to use that cutoff at top 24. So I'm looking back at the last 10 years, and I'm trying to figure out what the cutoff is or what that median replacement value range is right at that wide receiver 24 point. Uh, So historically, over the past decade, we're looking at around 13.6 PPR points per game. And over that time, uh, in that time period, so we're looking at 2012 through 2021, and obviously the game has changed a little bit since then, uh, so we could probably skim this back and only go back like five years or three years and kind of see how it looks. But I ran the data for the last 10, and I figured we have a big enough sample size there to roll with it. So over the past decade, you're looking at about 13.61 points per game or 13.631 points per game as kind of that threshold of what you're looking at for a hit or a wide receiver two season. 
over that time period, you've had 242 players that have played at least eight games in a season average that number. So I'll repeat that. 13.631 points per game over the past decade has been the cutoff for a top 24 season. And you're looking at 242 players over that time span. So it actually comes right out to the average that you'd be looking at. 242 over 10 years, it comes right out to about 24.2 per season, which is right in line with the top 24 over 10 years time span. So let's go a little bit deeper. Let's look at where the production came from over that time in terms of age. So in that 242 players that have hit this mark, uh, 99 of them, or 40 0.9%. So just shy of 41% of those players did it in their age 21 to 25 season. So basically 40.9% of those players that hit that mark were between 21 and 25. 110 of them hit that mark. 45.4% hit that mark between the ages of 26 and 29. And then only 33 of them or 13.64% hit that mark after the age of 30. When I'm using age, I'm looking at the cutoff of what age they will be at the end of the season. So if you're looking forward, you can kind of look at when a player will turn 30 and how is that relative to the current NFL season. Now, the one thing that you can't really decipher from this is how many players were actually eligible to do that. So I think this can skew the data a little bit, but it's cool to look at the distribution and say, all right, so 41% of the time, roughly, players that hit this mark are between age 21 and 25. 45% of them are between the ages of 26 and 29. And the remainder, about 14% of them, are at age 30 or higher. And again, you can't really look at and say, okay, well, out of those 33 that did it at the age of 30 or older, and we're talking about turned age 30 by the end of the season, so while they were doing it, so a guy that's going to be 30 at the end of the year might still be doing it in their 29 season, but out of how many were even eligible to do it? And obviously, we don't really know that. You'd have to go back and look at, okay, how many players were in the league at that position at that age that hit certain number of usage requirements? So it'd be a little more difficult to figure that out without really diving deep into some of that data. But it's cool to see the distribution. So 41%, 45% between 26 and 29, and 14% roughly over the age of 30. And obviously, the 40, 41% was age 21 and 25. So now let's look at this 2000 and 22 data. So we're talking about what's going on right now. And again, this is a small sample size. I just pulled this through four weeks. So it's not updated through week five, but through four weeks, let's look at the distribution of how many players have hit this mark. So I mentioned 242 have done it over the last decade, right? So thus far in 2022, we have right now 28 players that have hit that mark thus far. 28 players have hit that 13.63 PPR points per game this year. So we're actually outpacing that number of around 24.2 per year that I talked about. We're at 28 right now. Now looking at the distribution, players that are between the ages of 21 and 25 that are hitting that mark right now, 13 of them are between the ages of 21 and 25. So that is 13 of 28 that are there. So that's exceeding that 41% that I talked about historically. And not only is it exceeding the number per year, right? The 28 compared to the 24.2, but they're doing it at a higher rate. 
the guys that are doing it between the ages of 21 and 25, we're at about a 46% clip, just over 46% thus far this year, compared to 41% historically. Same thing 26 through 29. We're at a 50% rate. Historically, you're right around the 45% rate. And then obviously much lower. And this, again, is a small sample size, but it's interesting to look at that distribution. Only one thus far on pace to hit this mark after the age of 30 compared to, and that's a small percentage. We're talking about if it was only one, we're looking at less than 4%. Historically, you're right around that 14% mark. So it's just interesting. And that kind of speaks to, if you're looking at this like cutoff or this threshold of being a top 24 wide receiver, uh, we're seeing more of them do it this year thus far than historically. We're seeing more of them do it in the first range between ages 21 and 25, and more of them do it between the ages of 26 and 29. Less of them doing it after the age of 30. And that can be for one of two reasons. If you think about that logically, well, obviously there's been an influx of good wide receiver talent over the last four or five years, especially from 2019 to 2022. But we've seen a ton of receivers come in through those four classes that are literally making up the bulk of the current top 60, top 50, top 70, you whatever call it, in current ADP in terms of wide receiver value. So you've seen an influx of youth. That's going to account for the fact that there's so many of those guys between the ages of 21 and 25, and then even some of them between 26 and 29 that are making that up. The second thing is the better the class is, the longer they stay in there. They don't get recycled as much. There's not as many busts. And I don't have that data in front of me, and I have to find it from uh, some previous research. And I know many other people in this space have this. Uh, but the turnover rate, at least when you're talking about wide receivers that hit in this range or are close to hitting in this range or are viable to be in this range, um, are, are busting on a less frequent basis. So you're going to have more of them that hang around through those age ranges. They're not going to age out, you know, 30 plus for a little bit longer. Some of the guys that might have been hitting those numbers have aged out. So you might have had a guy that was 30 or 31 that they get pushed out. You know, maybe they get pushed out for a job. Maybe they get pushed out a little bit quicker. Or they move on to a different situation quicker. But I think that's just interesting to logically think about, well, how is that happening? Why does this data make sense based on what we know, given the dynasty landscape? And that's it. So I think that was cool to look up. You know, right now we're trending, and this kind of goes to the opposite of what I talked about on the running back show. We're trending to where there's more receivers hitting these benchmarks. There's more receivers hitting these benchmarks in kind of the sweet spot, especially that 21 through 25 range. That's where we're going to probably value those players the most. And it makes sense because they're obviously producing to warrant being valued in that range. So that's the top 24 range. Now I'm going to move up to the next range and start looking at the wide receiver one. So you're looking at top 12, top 12 seasons, top 12 finishes over the past decade. Uh, so the number, the target number is about 16.03 PPR points. And over the last decade, you've had 127 players that have played at least eight games in a season have hit that number. So an average of 12.7 per year. So a little bit more frequent uh, than you saw hit the top 24 numbers, uh, at least at a per season pace. But 12.7 per year hit that number. And then looking at the distribution. So this is over the past decade. Uh, just shy of 38% of those were between the ages of 21 and 25. The ages between 26 and 29, you're looking at 48%, and then ages 30 plus, 14%. So again, 38%, 48%, and 14% historically. So just you notice that there's some younger players doing it at a higher rate at the lower threshold, right? So here you have 
players that are slightly older doing it more frequently between 26 and 30 plus, uh, you're looking at 62% uh, compared to the threshold below top 24, only about 58% when you combine those. So let's look at 2022 thus far. Again, this is a small sample size, but 2022. So the average of 12.7, we're doing it per year historically. This year, right now, we're at 14. We're at 14 players that have hit that 16.03 points per game number or more. Thus far, we are at seven. So seven out of 14, 50% of those players that are doing it this year are between the ages of 21 and 25. Now that far exceeds the historical number that was right around 38%. Ages 26 and 29, you're at 6%. So six out of 14, pretty much in line with what you saw historically. Six out of 14, you're looking at right around 43%. So a little bit lower, but again, a small sample size. Uh, And then only one, only one out of 14 thus far uh, is doing it at the age of 30 plus or will be turning 30 plus at the end of the season. So less than, far less than the historical number that was right around 14%. So again, a trend. What can you speak to this? Well, obviously the wide receivers that have come in in the last few classes, that's where you're going to find your ages 21 through 25 hits that are hitting those marks and go through and look at the numbers. Uh, and quite a few of those guys that are in that range above 16 PPR points per game thus far this year, make up players from those last three or four classes. So it's interesting to look at that, but again, it just speaks to the influx of the wide receiver talent. Uh, and then you match that up historically, you know, you see that the players that are older again, just like the first sample size, it's at a far less rate. Now, this is a very small sample size, only talking about 14 thus far this year. So obviously this could change. If three players that are 30 plus by the end of the year hit this number and then only 15 do it, well, obviously that's going to be 20%. So it's going to skew the numbers. So I don't want to look at that as intently as just trying to figure what the trends look like and why it explains what we talked about last week with the running backs. And it's reflected in this data. You know, you again have players that are hitting these marks more frequently, but also at a higher rate at younger ages. So that's kind of what this data says. So let's take it up one more notch and let's look at the very, very top. Now, this is going to be an extremely small sample size, but we're looking at the 23.2 points per game. That is the threshold to have a wide receiver one season. Uh, And thus far, historically over the past decade, only seven players have hit that mark or exceeded it. So it's very, very difficult to hit. Now, keep in mind, this is an extremely small sample size, and we'll see if this holds through the rest of the year. But again, over the past decade, only seven players have hit a mark of more than 23.2 PPR points per game. That is an average of 0.7 players per season that have done it. Six of those seven all were between the ages of 26 and 29. This year, we have three players that are currently doing it. Now, is that pace going to hold? Maybe, maybe not. But it just tells you the fact that we have three players that are doing something this year that has only been done seven times over the past decade. Again, it just speaks to that trend. So not only are the hits more frequently, as illustrated by the data that I gave you in the first two data sets, but they're bigger. They're bolder hits. They're hits that are more impactful. When you compare that relative to the running back scoring, which I articulated last week, is low relative to historical data, but also compressed relative to that replacement value, you can see why it feels like the receivers are having more of an impact because they are, and this data backs it up. So that was a lot to digest. Um, I'm going to come back here after a short break. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about some value trends. So I pulled some ADP 
over the past four years. And I'm going to look at that and kind of see the distribution of if it makes sense and if it's reflected in this data that we see right now. And then talk a little bit about the impact going forward for the rest of this season, trade values, the values of 2023 first, and then just very briefly touching on what looks like the 2023 draft class and how we're going to navigate that given that it's going to be the opposite, at least from what people like Ray and a lot of other people in this space have said, the strength is going to be the running backs relative to the wide receivers. And obviously with this data and with what the current trends are saying, that's going to kind of conflict with what the market says. So where do we go from that? And I'm sure we'll do future episodes talking about that specifically, but I want to touch on it uh, because I think there's a way that I'm going to look at it the rest of the year and kind of take my strategy, at least from like a trading perspective and the value of later picks, especially uh, and iron that out for the rest of the season, preparing for the 2023 offseason. I'll be back here in 30 seconds. Welcome back. We spent the first 20, 25 minutes of the show talking about historical wide receiver production data. And the theme is that that production data is being accelerated. It's being duplicated uh, at a higher rate and at a denser rate uh, here thus far in 2022. So if you're looking back at the numbers of what you would define to be a top 24 season or a quote unquote hit or a top 12 season, uh, it's being done by younger players at a higher rate and at a denser rate thus far in 2022. Now, is that going to continue the rest of the year? We will see. Uh, But it's definitely being felt in terms of impact if you look at your dynasty teams. And it correlates with the data that we talked about last week with the running back production and gaining access to that running back production that is really closer to replacement level at a much, much cheaper cost. And what is making up the difference in that cost? Why are running backs a little bit cheaper and more accessible on the market? it's because the wide receivers are more expensive. So I wanted to look at some data and I wanted to compare uh, startup ADP in Superflex uh, in 2022. And I took the beginning of this season's ADP. So it's really not even going to reflect some of the early production from the rookies, but we were already trending that way uh, going into 2022. A lot of people were fading running backs. It wasn't something that's just started this year. It's been going on for a couple years. And I wanted to compare the startup values in 2022 compared to 2019. And again, what do those two years have in common? Well, 2022 and 2019, both of them right on the precipice of what we thought was going to be a elite running back class. So obviously with 2020, we had the elite running backs all drafted in the top two rounds. If you want to throw AJ Dillon in that range, we had six running backs that we immediately jumped into like the top 30 of Dynasty ADP and five, we jumped right into like the top 20. So we knew that class was going to be really, really heavy in terms of profiles and talent at the running back position. And then obviously we have that same thing coming up here in 2023. So I wanted to look at the startup ADP the season before as people started to plan for, all right, next season, I know I'm going to be able to get running backs at a higher clip or I have a better shot at getting running backs in the rookie draft. So how am I going to approach my startup draft the year before and how am I going to build? So I'm looking back at 2019. So if you're just going to take the top 10 rounds of a super flex draft. Now, again, we're talking super flex here. 
So there's going to be some correlation in terms of the values of the quarterbacks back then versus the values of the quarterbacks. Now, if there's any random tight ends, I'm not using tight end premium here. So really the tight ends are pretty much negligible in terms of the impact of how they're valued in here. But if you're just taking the startup ADP at wide receiver, relative to the rest of the landscape in that first 10 rounds. So in 2019, if you're talking about first round startup wide receivers, amazingly, we had five of them going in the top 12 or the first round of a super flex startup. In the top two rounds, we had eight. In the top three rounds, we had 11. In the top four rounds, we had 16. In the top five rounds, we had 23. In the top six rounds, only 24. Top seven, 27. Top eight, 31. Top nine, 37. Top 10 rounds. In 2019, we had 41 wide receivers going in the first 10 rounds. Now, if you look at the distribution of that, though, I already mentioned we had five in the first round, three more in the second round, three more in the third round, five more in the fourth round, seven more in the fifth round. So in the first five rounds in 2019, we had 23 wide receivers going in the first five rounds. And that's a lot. I mean, that is definitely a lot. And that reflects, even though we didn't feel that the high end of the wide receiver market at the time, and if you remember back, that was back on the tail end of like Odell Beckham and the tail end of DeAndre Hopkins. Go back and look at some ADP from 2019. And you'll see that at the top end, we really weren't sure about the wide receivers at the very, very top, but the trend definitely said that we were valuing them extremely highly, knowing that other than that 2017 and 2018 running back class, there really wasn't much else in the running back landscape at the time. Hence, you had 23 receivers going in the top five rounds of the startup. And you have to think that contributed to the fact that we had a 2020 running back class that was coming up that people knew was going to be very good. So if they were targeting running backs, they were more likely to say, you know what? I can get them with a 2020 first round pick. And if everyone remembers, the 2020 first round picks were treated very much like the 2023 picks. Now, I don't think the information was as vast back then. You know, this is only three years ago, but the information was not as vast back then. There wasn't as many content creators. There just wasn't as much discussion, especially in terms of like the Devi landscape. And we have to give, you know, our very own Ray Garvin a lot of credit for that. You know, I talked about that in the last episode, like the Devi and, and C2C and just talking about this in this scope has really, really exponentially grown since 2019. But again, back then you had 23 receivers going in the top five rounds. In 2022, though, you know, you only had two going in the first round. You had four going in the top two rounds, six going in the top three rounds, 14 going in the top four rounds, 17 going in the top five rounds. Now, I will say, if you look at the quarterbacks, there's part of the reason that those numbers are a little bit deflated, at least early on at wide receiver, is because of the quarterbacks. There's a lot more quarterbacks going in that first five round range than were going there in 2019 and even before that. So quarterbacks have exponentially grown in value, but I don't want to talk about that. But if you just look up the numbers, you're going to go, wow, yeah, there's a lot of quarterbacks going in that range compared to where they were going back in 2019. But here's where the numbers get interesting. And here's where it kind of explains the data that I was talking about on the first part of the show. So in 2019, from round six to round 10, you had 18 receivers going in that range. So between round six and 10 of a 12-team Superflex startup, you had 18 receivers going in that range. In 2022, you're talking about 28 receivers going in that range. 28 receivers going between round six and round 10 of a startup draft. 
And that just explains right there what we were talking about. This threshold of wide receivers where people are chasing the wide receivers basically over any other position. Because you have to figure a lot of the first five rounds were made up with quarterbacks. But then after that, it is just wide receivers galore that are going in that range. Now, the curious thing is in both years, you had over 40 receivers go in the top 10 rounds. In 2019, you had 41. And in 2022, you had 45. So the overall number isn't that big of a difference, but the concentration definitely is. So if you go through and just pull up like DLF Superflex ADP from 2019 to 2022, and again, I know that it's a small sample size of mock drafters pulling data, just trying to base team building off of doing mock drafts, but it's enough to warrant just to spot some trends. Because I think, you know, when you're pulling together 10 mock drafts and you're putting together an ADP, it's enough to give you a little bit of a trend to say, all right, explains what the data is saying at the same time. And it definitely does. I mean, you definitely see that concentration of receivers going between round six and round 10, which speaks towards a lot more people are building around that wide receiver threshold idea that I was talking about. Again, I'm not going to go into the entire thing of it tonight, but it speaks to the fact that people, when they're in this ranges, are going, you know what? I am comfortable waiting on running backs. Maybe they take one running back. Maybe they take two. Maybe they take one and then they grab a couple of the other ones that they think they can get in those ranges that I talked about last week. But the bulk of picks going in that middle to back half of the first 10 rounds of the startup draft in a super flex league are wide receivers. It was not uncommon for you to do a startup draft and somebody take two quarterbacks, maybe a tight end or a running back, and then boom, they're hitting seven straight wide receivers. And it's reflected in this data. Now, it correlates to the fact that that's where the production has been thus far in 2022. So if you built your team that way, you're probably in pretty good shape. As long as you picked some of the right receivers and you pick some of the receivers that are hitting those spike numbers or those high-end numbers. But for the most part, your roster construction is correct in terms of how you would want to structure based on the overall current landscape. So if you think about it, if you built 50 teams like this and really all you did is diversify between the players that you picked, you know, maybe you picked one running back within those first 10 rounds and then you added a bunch of different running backs after you established the fact that you grabbed your six, seven, eight, nine receivers, whatever it is, between rounds four and rounds 12, 13 of the startup draft, you essentially hit on the optimal build for how the landscape is currently scoring. But then it comes down to which players did you pick? And that's where a lot of the, the stuff that's being done by the 4D chess guys, they talk about best ball and they talk about spike weeks. You know, a lot of that matters a little bit more in lineups because obviously you have to hit on those when they're in your lineup. That's what I talked about last week. The bulk of the discussion was on the running back episode of how do you gain access to those spike weeks? What is easier? What is easier from a construction standpoint to hit those spike weeks when you're talking about guys you're not really sure when to start? And the idea being you liquidate as many running backs as you can. So you almost just have to ride the wave with some of those secondary running backs that you're really not sure who to start week to week. You just kind of ride the wave with the ones that you have. And it speaks to this roster construction if you look at the distribution uh, of the players in these ranges. So I know that's a lot. And I know it kind of is going all over the place because I talked a little bit about numbers. Now I'm talking about ADP. But I just wanted to show why things feel like they feel right now in the dynasty market. Why everybody feels that, okay, wide receivers are the currency that everybody wants. Because A, it's reflected in the current landscape if you just look at ADP value. But B, more importantly, it is what's winning. It is what's won over the last couple years. It's what's winning thus far this year. And then you have a lot of the reasons behind that that Ray talks about. You know, we talk about 
the snap shares for running backs going down. This is the fourth straight year where the snap shares for the high-end running backs have gone down. So in terms of like how many running backs have played 65 or 70% of the snaps over the last three years, it's gone down every year. Now, will that ever go back up? Who knows? And I think there's some merit to saying if you find those guys that do hit those snap shares and they do end up getting a ton more touches than their peers, and if they're any good, if they're any any ability to be efficient with those touches, score a lot of touchdowns, be in a really good offense, that's where you're going to find your high warp running backs. And those are going to be more impactful because there's less of them, because everyone else is kind of coming back to the pack like we talked about last week. So where do we go with this? How do we actually take this wide receiver data and go, all right, Let's delineate what this means for the rest of this season from a trade value perspective, and how does it impact the 2023 class, given it seems like it's it's the best case scenario. If you've built your teams this way, it seems like the 2023 class is perfect. It's perfect for you to come in and go, you know what? I have a team that's already built this way, and if I just look at the construction, I probably have the ability to fortify my running back room by drafting running backs in this class because that's what the strength's going to be. So it should be easy. If I have a couple firsts, a couple seconds, I should be able to take shots on running backs at a quote-unquote like better rate or at a better quality rate than I might be in previous years, especially given that the current trends say, all right, Wide receivers are valued higher, which should tell you, even if the running back class is really strong, are people going to still follow that logic and go, you know what, I'm going to draft running backs instead of wide receivers. I'm just going to take best player available. I'm not really sure about that. That's a question that I've had to ask myself because I'm trying to guess, all right, if I have a bunch of mid to late first, I'm not going to really talk about like my high end first teams that are tanking teams that I know are going to finish in the bottom three, bottom four. If you have those picks, it really doesn't make sense to trade those picks, just knowing what we know about the value of those picks as we get to the offseason. But the toughest one to decipher are those picks where you're a, a fringe playoff team and you have to make that decision. Do I want to trade away my first? And how much does that matter in terms of what my roster construction looks like? If I have a hero RB team that is riding the back of, say, Christian McCaffrey, and I don't really have my roster construction perfectly where I want it, but I'm also in the playoffs. You know, I have enough receivers to get me by. I have the quarterback production to get me by. I'm probably going to be able to make the playoffs. Is that a team that I want to make the bet to trade away that potential 108, 109, 110, just depending on where I finish, but I'm confident I'm going to make the playoffs. Do I want to trade that first away, given that I might be riding a hero RB Christian McCaffrey, a guy that if he were to get hurt, you could argue would expire almost. He'd almost go to the point where his market value would crash, and I'm not really sure I could count him in the hero RB sentence anymore if he were to have another significant injury. So all of a sudden, I've traded away the pick that could end up be, if worst case scenario happened, 104, 105, and I've lost my hero RB. That's going to be a pick where I go next year. I'm probably going to want to take a shot. If I can get the RB2 of the class, that's where I'm probably going to want to spend that pick, given what we know about the talent that's coming in next year at the running back position. Now, on the contrary, let's say I have one of these teams that also is operating kind of in the fringe, you know, kind of in the middle of the pack right now. I think I can make the playoffs, uh, but I don't have a hero running back. I don't even have one. But I've been kind of writing out this production and getting starts from Tony Pollard or Ramondre Stevenson or Miles Sanders. You know, I've been kind of patchworking it together. Now, again, that's going to be a team that goes, you know what? I probably eventually need to get to that hero RB alignment, but it's working what I'm doing right now. 
And so is that a team where if I can trade away my late first, maybe I can get a player that can help me. Maybe I can get another one of those types, like a Miles Sanders or Damian Harris or someone like that. And I can trade back. I can trade my first and I can get that player from a team that is out of it. A team that's in the bottom three or four of the league. Maybe I can trade my middle first or my mid first in 2023 for a high second and a player. And I look at that and go, all right, that's the type of bet that I make if I think I'm going to finish in the playoff range. But I'm also going to get a player that helps me now. One of these running backs that probably fits my construction where I may need another body like another Miles Sanders or like another Damian Harris, someone like that. I keep throwing those out there because they stick in my head, but I need another one of those types to use as we get to bye weeks and as we have more injuries that happen. But I'm also hedging my bets to probably get a similar player, a similar type of player, if I want to draft a running back in next year's class. So that's almost going against the hero RB status. It's going to be really hard to probably get up and hit on one of those hero RBs in next year's draft if I forego the chance of having that first round pick. So if I trade the 109 for Damian Harris and the 204, it's probably going to be really difficult for me without breaking up my roster construction, without down tiering at quarterback, without trading away one of my elite receivers. It's going to be very hard for me to get one of those hero or elite running backs the next year. So part of the bet would be, all right, if I make that type of move, I'm going to now have to find a a discount bin or a cheap version of running backs next year. And I think that's a fair bet to make as well. The aforementioned example with Christian McCaffrey, if he were to get hurt, let's say he suffers a a calf strain and he misses six weeks, you know, and it ruins the bulk of your season in 2022. He's still going to exist next year. He's still going to have a hint of that potential upside to where he could be one of those 20 point per game running backs, but he should come at a cheaper cost. And I think that's kind of where I'm leaning right now. Part of the bet that I'm making is, these guys that survived the 2022 season, they're actually going to get pushed down even further than they have been this year, next year, when all these running backs come in. So it'll be interesting to see how the market responds on a guy like Derrick Henry or Joe Mixon. You know, one of those types going into next year where those guys could easily have another season where they give you 16, 17, 18, maybe even up to 20 points per game. But what's their market price going to be relative to what it was before this season? It was already discounted this season. We already talked about that uh, with how many receivers were going from that round five to round 10 range in ADP. Is it going to be even more discounted next year? And that's the question I'm going to ask everybody else. That's the question that I'm struggling with. The biggest thing that I'm trying to figure out right now is on my teams that are clearly not just the most stacked team in the league. Because another thing that I've found is it's a lot harder to trade your late first than you really think. If you're the team that's sitting at 4-0, soon to be 5-0, and you're trying to pedal your 2023 first, people are already looking at that as that's going to be a 111 or a 112. That is going to be probably a wide receiver. I'm going to miss out on the top three or four quarterbacks. I'm going to miss out on the top three or four running backs. If all I'm going to be able to get is a wide receiver with that pick... I'm not really that interested in trading something that helps me right now, unless I'm just out of it, unless I am tanking, unless I am just selling off pieces. But I'm really not that interested in the pure equity value of that pick, the pure profile value of that pick. So I think a lot more people are looking at mid first and going, you know what, I'm going to gamble based on the team that I'm trading with. I'm going to gamble that if Scott's trading me his pick, his 2023 first, and he's currently in fifth place, 
but I'm a little concerned about how he's constructed his roster. I'm a little concerned with his depth at running back. That's a lot of times people look at my teams and go, you know what? You don't have a lot of running back depth. They may take a gamble on taking my pick for that exact reason. So I think that's the conundrum for me is I think the sweet spot to trade away first is when your team is anywhere between fifth, ninth place. And everyone knows you're middle of the pack. That's where you have to pick your lane. And that's what I want to challenge everybody with. Uh, And maybe we'll take some questions or follow-ups on this that I can address on the next episode. That is the toughest part for me to decipher right now heading into this 2023 class. Is we know what the class looks like. Check out the mock draft that Ray did with us on the the Trades in 5 channel. Uh, It's a YouTube mock draft from this past Wednesday. Uh, We went through, and Ray and I talked about it afterwards. Like when we got to that 108, 109 range... We were like, oh man, even, even the point where Ray took Will Levis in the middle of the first round, it was to the point where it was like, man, that, that just doesn't, it doesn't feel great. It doesn't really feel like I'm getting a ton of value with that pick. Now, obviously the names are going to change. The profiles are going to change a little bit. The draft capital is going to be significant for where players land, but it really feels like it's that class where once you get outside the top five or six players, There's a big mishmash of the types of players you could take. There's some quarterbacks. There's going to be some running backs. There's going to be wide receivers. So it's really going to be kind of like, I don't want to say the dead zone range, but it's going to kind of be that range where these are the picks to gamble on. These are the picks that right now I see it as ambiguous in this range from let's just call it 108 to 205. And so if you can get deals within those ranges that fit your roster construction and fit where you think your team is going to head the rest of this year, then I think that's where you probably want to focus a lot of your trading efforts. Your teams that are in the middle of the pack, your teams that are trending towards being competitive, but they're not so good that everyone else is going to actually devalue your pick. I spoke on that a little bit ago. If I have like a 5-0 team and I'm still holding my first, clearly I'd love to trade that first. Clearly I would love to trade that first for something that can help me. But when I go to the tanking teams in my league and I say, hey, you want a 2023 first, they don't look at that first as a random 2023 first. Two years ago, they would have looked at that first and went, well, you know, maybe your team's going to be really stacked, but what if it isn't? What if something goes wrong? You make a couple bad trades, you have a couple injuries. That's the 103, 104. So immediately in their head, they're going, man, that, that pick could be CJ Stroud. That pick could be Jameer Gibbs. Now they're not looking at it like that. If anything, they're looking at that pick going, I'm kind of just going to be stuck with whatever the group leaves me. And that's not that inspiring. So if I'm in those shoes, I'd almost rather keep my own pick. Unless I can find one of these deals where I can buy an insulated receiver because it fits my roster construction. If I can do one of those trade back trades where I trade back, you know, from my 111 or 112 to the 205 and pick up a player that can help me, I'm fine doing that. But I'm much less likely to just trade away my late first because I haven't seen where you get enough for that late first relative to the potential of what you could get with that pick next year. And it's not just the player, but it's how much flexibility could be there. I mean, I did a series over the summer on Trades in 5, and I talked about what am I doing if I'm picking from the 109 to the 112. And my conclusion was like, listen, the only thing I'm missing out probably in this range is going to be the ability to pick the position that I want. But I don't think I'm losing out really from a profile perspective or a draft capital perspective. Really, it's just going to come down to what does everybody pick ahead of me? If I need a quarterback... I might not get one because there could be four that go off the board in the top eight. If I want a running back, I may not be able to get one because there might be four or five that go off the board before I pick at the 111. If I want a wide receiver, they're going to be there. 
But what if I'm in a wide receiver heavy league where four or five receivers go in the top 10 or top 11? Then I'm looking at, all right, I'm going to have to pick a quarterback, let's say. The quarterback four might be the value on the board at the 111. But do I really want to make that pick next year when I could trade that for something that gives me a little more equity right now? So that's what I'm wrestling with. That is the biggest takeaway from this episode is going to be thinking about those picks in the back half of the draft in 2023 while they're still ambiguous to the rest of your league. So if you have one of those teams, and I have a ton of teams that are second place, third place, fourth place, fifth place, sixth place, seventh place, like I'd say the majority of my teams right now, 85 to 90% of them are in that range. I have very few teams that are just absolutely stacked and dominant. And one of the reasons for that is I often trade from my excess understanding The odds of running the table and just having the best team wire to wire is so low. If there's ever a point where I can go, all right, I have a top three team. Let me trade a couple excess pieces for picks, for flexibility, for liquidity. I do that all the time. And so I kind of maybe weaken my chances of being the most dominant team from start to finish. But I know that I probably have enough just to make the playoffs, just to maybe get the first round by. But I have a lot of teams that are going to be end up stuck in that third, fourth, fifth place range. And then I have a live shot to make the championship, but hopefully I've cashed in some of my assets along the way that give me that flexibility throughout the season to make a push when it presents itself. So I'll leave you with this. What are you doing with those picks based on what I talked about today and talked about last week with the running back scoring and the wide receiver scoring and how that is reflected in the current valuation of those players on the market? And then how does that contrast with the upcoming class? Because you would think it's the polar opposite, right? If you think you've gone wide receiver heavy, wide receiver, wide receiver, wide receiver, that correlates perfectly with an upcoming draft where it's running back, running back, running back. And it's not just running backs at the top. We're going to get another class of running backs where I'm super excited, not just for the high end guys, but I'm excited for all the guys that go in round three and round four. I think we're going to have another eight, nine, 10 guys that go in that range where it's like, wow, Damian Pierce, Wow, Rashad White, like those types in today's games are just the right situation slash one injury away slash, you know, the right type of efficiency from being in that startable range with the right builds. So I'm really excited about those guys, which makes the abundance of the running backs in the 2023 class. Based on my research thus far, uh, this is going to be a good class to address that. But how do you want to navigate it, given that we still have some ambiguous values in those picks? And also, what is the easiest to navigate in terms of trading those picks away when you have the mid to late first, but they're not so late that everyone just kind of lowballs you on the value? So that's my takeaway. I want everybody to think about that and leave me some feedback on what you're doing with those picks, because I don't have all the answers. I mean, I just went through 50 minutes of this show. I don't have all the answers. I have a lot of teams that I need to go through and really look at the landscape of the league and look at those picks that I'm carrying and go, this is the range that I have to make a decision on. Do I get out of these picks or do I keep these picks and make them next year? And I think that's the range where everybody's looking to deal picks. You know, the teams that are at the very, very top of the draft, they're not looking to deal their 101, 102, 103. Now, maybe you have a rogue 102, 103 that you got from another team and you're going, all right, this is the 102 next year. What will somebody give me for it? But those are one-off deals. Like a lot of times, if you're holding your own pick, you're not looking to move that 102 right now. If anything, you're trying to get that 102 down to the 101. And then same thing, if you're if you're the 5-0 team and you're trying to trade your pick, it's almost like, 
what can you get for it? But everyone knows it's going to be late. Everyone knows it has a really good shot of being a team that's at least in the bottom four. You know you're going to get a buy, and it's probably going to be a team that ends up at the 111 or 112. So I feel that the values are bottomed out on that pick as well. So leave me feedback. Um, I know this was a little bit of a different episode from last week, uh, but it's really just kind of me talking through this stuff because it's a problem that I'm still trying to figure out uh, day by day, week by week. And then we have new data that comes in, new injuries that come in, you know, reassess every single team every single week uh, and go from there. So again, I appreciate everybody with Destination Devi uh, for supporting me, for giving me feedback on the first episode. Uh, Just absolutely having a blast so glad to be here. So glad to have the platform. And thank you to everybody that's reached out uh, and given me congratulations. I know I said that last week, but I'm going to continue to say that until it kind of dies out. So I appreciate you all. Um, real quick, I want to give everybody a reminder. Uh, my show that I do with Eric Vanek, America's Game, airs on this same feed. It usually airs uh, on Saturday mornings. Uh, and we usually record those sometime Thursday afternoon, Thursday night, Friday morning. We record those episodes uh, it's really just Eric and I chopping it up. We're going to talk about a lot of different stuff. We did a trade episode uh, this past week that's really evergreen. Like, honestly, you can listen to that episode and just forget about the names that we're talking about. And a lot of the trade psychology that went into that episode that we talked about, you can apply that to literally any single week because it happens every single week. The names just differ. Maybe the trade partners differ, but the same stuff happens week to week during the season. So shout out to Eric at Eric Vanek NFL on Twitter and our show. Uh, America's game. And then also check out the newsletter. Everybody in Destination Devi uh, is contributing to this newsletter. Uh, It's a must read every single week. Subscribe. You get tons of free content, tons of free information that's delivered in your inbox uh, every weekend or every week before the weekend hits. So it's a lot of stuff for betting and upcoming weekend stuff for matchups, a lot of great content, and everybody on the team contributes to that. So check it out, support them. You can find the Destination Devi newsletter at allgas.beehiv.com. Enter your email and subscribe to the newsletter, and you'll get it every single week. I will go ahead and sign off. Again, I appreciate everybody. appreciate everybody at Destination Devi. And until next week, where maybe I will be doing some announcements on when we're going to live stream, take some questions, take some follow-ups. Again, I plan on doing that every couple weeks just to kind of interact with the Destination Devi audience and really take some follow-up questions and do some follow-up discussion based on some of the episodes that I've done. So again, thank you all. I'll go ahead and sign off. Episode 2 of Destination Dynasty. When I wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up.